Let us pray. O God, you teach us your word, and in it you give us the richest of all treasures, and even our life. In our sinfulness we despise that word and look for treasures elsewhere. Turn us back to you and give us your Son's righteousness. In his name, amen. Dear fellow redeemed, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The text for our meditation this morning is from the 119th Psalm, the fifth stanza, verses 33 through 40. Please rise. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your engraved commands, and I will guard them to the end. Give me understanding, and I will guard your law, and I will keep it with all my heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for in it I delight. Turn my heart to your testimonies, and not to violent gain. Pass my eyes over from looking at vanity, and your ways preserve me. Raise up for your servant your sayings, so that you may be feared. Pass my disgrace over, of which I am afraid, for your judgments are good. Behold, I desire your regulations. In your righteousness, preserve me. These are your words, Heavenly Father. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. I'm going to teach you a little bit of Hebrew, or at least a concept in the Hebrew language. It's called hifil verbs, hifil verbs, which we might describe as causative. That's the, the grammatical term for what these verbs do. That, what that means is if you take the verb to learn, you understand what to learn means. But if we add a few words to it in English and we say to cause to learn, well, that means something different. And we might say to cause to learn means to teach, right? In Hebrew, they do the same thing, but not by adding different words or by changing to a totally different word. Instead, they change the form of the word into what's called a hifil verb. For example, in the second verse of this stanza, we pray, give me understanding. Give me understanding. The root word of that verb is bin in Hebrew, which means to understand. But here it's habineni, habineni, which means cause me to understand. And yes, hifil verbs usually begin with that Hebrew letter he, which makes the h sound. And so in this he stanza, there are a lot of hifil verbs. In fact, there are eight of them, and one of them is repeated to make a ninth. The psalmist utilizes this feature of Hebrew language to masterful effect in this poetry. St. Paul instructed the Christians, So then, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only when I was with you, but also now, much more in my absence, continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In fact, it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work, for the sake of his good pleasure. What this means is, while at first it seems like an insurmountable task for us to do the will of God, to look at his law and do all that he demands, we see this psalm stanza teaching us how in his word God works in us, the will and the working of his word. And we see in this regard how his word is our treasure and his word is our life. This stanza hinges on two central verses, 
Turn my heart to your testimonies and not to violent gain. Pass my eyes over from looking at vanity. In your ways, preserve me. I remember again that parable that Jesus told about the man who sold his many possessions so that he could go and buy the field in which was hidden that pearl of great price. Or as St. Paul told the young pastor, Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. You might be familiar with that truism, godliness with contentment is great gain. But I want to share the context of that passage. St. Paul said, If anyone teaches different doctrines and does not devote himself to the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Instead, he has a morbid craving for controversies and battles over words, things that produce envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant frictions among people whose minds are depraved, who have lost hold of the truth imagining that their godliness is a means of financial gain. Separate yourselves from such people. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we certainly cannot take anything out. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be satisfied. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge them into complete destruction and utter ruin. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evils. By striving for money, some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pains. And so this is the dichotomy between the true and the false way. The false, wicked way that's described by Paul is looking for financial gain, and sometimes that's literal money-grubbing. You're in the church today because it gives you a position of power in the community or security in your grocery bills or even a literal paycheck. But sometimes it's more nuanced than that. You're in the church because you're a big fish in that little pond or because you get a level of comfort in your pet sins or because you want to prove how noble and righteous you are. On the other side is the right way about which we ask, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your engraved commands, and I will guard them to the end. And this is what St. Paul calls the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and godly teaching. This whole Psalm 119 is about that way. I've mentioned that there are eight terms for the word of God in this psalm, but there are actually a couple of others that sometimes seem like they should be part of that list. And they substitute for other words occasionally, and way, derech in Hebrew, is one of those words. The way is God's word. But it's also easy to be led astray along that other way, the wrong way, the way of the wicked, and that's because of sin. Sin crouched at the door of Cain, who ought to have done good, but rather than see the riches that God had already given him and praise him for them, Cain sought after a different gain. He wanted to keep the richest part of his material blessings and feel as though he had the favor of God. Is that a temptation that any of us can identify with? So we ask, therefore, that God would teach or instruct us. His engraved commands, again I come to the picture of this being a ditch dug into the ground, engraved like the etching 
into the stone of the Ten Commandments. The law, in this sense, has the use of a curb. And this is the first instruction. It keeps us from going off on our own, down into the way of death, the way that leads to destruction. You can think of some of those water slides at like the Wisconsin Dells or places like that, that you go down those slides so very fast, if those sides weren't hedged up just the right amount, you'd fall off into very dangerous territory. We start here with this instruction of the curb so that we can learn what God has designed life to be like. Give me understanding, we pray, and I will guard your law, and I will keep it with all my heart. Now this, I think, comes out of someone who is stricken by the second instruction, which is the mirror of the law. It shows us ourselves, and it shows us the darkest parts of ourselves. You read the law, and your conscience responds. You shall have no other gods, it says. I have loved myself more. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, but I have used it for my own purposes, not those that he has designed. Remember the Sabbath day by setting it apart as holy, but I have devoted more more priority and time to work or family or personal hobbies than to God's word. Honor your father and your mother, it says, but I have thought and behaved as though I know better. You shall not commit murder, I have hated. You shall not commit adultery, but I have been drawn to others. You shall not steal, but I have convinced myself that there are things that are rightfully mine, even though they're not. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, but I have sought to enhance the worst parts of him, both in my own thoughts and in my speaking with others. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. Haven't I thought that his life looks in many ways better than mine? Can we keep it with all our heart? There has to be a way. Perhaps I just haven't understood it fully, so Lord, please give me that understanding. The more we gain that understanding, though, the more we see how badly we have done. We learn, as Bishop Locke said in his devotion book, the law of the Lord requires love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a genuine faith. The least unkindness, even if it were simply a passing impulse, the least trace of selfishness or anger or other evil things is enough to destroy all your righteousness. Just one break destroys love's string of pearls. And that is until we come to this understanding. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the only one who has been perfect in keeping the entire law of God, and he did all of that for you. God counts his righteousness as your righteousness. Christ is my righteousness. What do I do with that new status? I dare not throw it away with my sin. Instead, we died to sin. How can we go on living in it any longer? Or do you not know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We want to follow the law of God's love, to show our love for Jesus and what lengths he has gone to for us. And so we say, lead me in the path of your commandments, for in it I delight. 
And yes, we delight in those Ten Commandments that loomed over us so threateningly and hugely. We delight in them now because we've been purified, because we've been brought over from the way of death into the way of life, over from the life of Cain, envious of God's favor, to that of Abel, rejoicing in God's favor. And this then climaxes in those verses about violent gain and vanity. After looking into God's law, we know how prone we are to looking for such things. We know that our sinful hearts are hedonistic, pleasure-seeking, pain-avoiding things, grabbing at things that are meaningless and vanishing like smoke rather than unto those truly lasting things. But forgiven all of those sins in Jesus' cross, our new lives desire to hold on to that great treasure of God's Word which has delivered to us that life. St. Paul also gives some encouragement about what this new life ought to look like. Indeed, let this attitude be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Though he was by nature God, he did not consider equality with God as a prize to be displayed, but he emptied himself by taking the nature of a servant. When he was born in human likeness and his appearance was like that of any other man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And this is an expansion on Jesus' instruction when he said, If anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The sinful flesh, remember, which clings to you and me, is so good, so good at getting distracted by things like comfort and material happiness. Pastoral experience has taught me this very complicated reality in our souls that for many of you and perhaps all of you, in, in ways certainly only you and God know, life is filled with so much pain and suffering and difficulty. And there's a pain that has tormented you perhaps for years, and perhaps you know how you can relieve that pain. You know there's one thing that you could do that could set you at ease at least just a little bit from that ache. But that one thing that you could do is contrary to God's law. Well, it can't really hurt, can it? Not doing any real harm. All I'm doing is relieving my own suffering, just turning that release valve a little bit. Why does God want me to live in this suffering and pain? Now hold on to that last question. Why does God want you to live in this pain? Reframe that a bit and put the best construction on God. Why does God allow you to live in this pain? Well, talk to him about it. Jeremiah the weeping prophet complained aloud to God, You have deprived my soul of peace. I have forgotten what well-being is. I said, my endurance has vanished along with my hope from the Lord. And St. Paul did something similar. I was given a thorn in my flesh, he said, a messenger of Satan to torment me so that I would not become arrogant. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that he would take it away from me. And God answered both of them the same way. To Jeremiah, 
This is the reason I have hope. By the mercies of the Lord we are not consumed, for His compassions do not fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. My soul says, The Lord is my portion, therefore I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good to hope quietly for the salvation of the Lord. To Paul. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will be glad to boast all the more in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may shelter me. That is why I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. This is what God answers to our prayer. Raise up for your servant your saying, so that you may be feared. The why of our sufferings may never fully sufficiently be answered. But the answer that we do receive is the answer of God's promises, His sayings of hope, so that we go through the same path that Christ did. The cross the grave, and the glorious resurrection and ascension to eternal life and bliss and joy with our loving Father and Savior and Comforter. And so the two testify together. Our torments, alongside God's promises, cause us to fear Him, to revere Him, to love Him, to trust in Him above all things. Well, it's a command that's terrifying to our sinful flesh. We are learning so intimately and personally of our own damnation when we examine the law of God. But God has answered our prayer. Pass my disgrace over of which I am afraid, for your judgments are good. My disgrace and your disgrace, our shame, our guilt, our sin has been made to pass away as far as the east is from the west. So far has He removed our rebellious acts from us. He made this promise, I will forgive their guilt and I will remember their sins no more. And that was done in Christ. God erased the record of our debt brought against us by His legal demands. This record stood against us, but He took it away by nailing it to the cross. These are His judgments. See how good they are. And we conclude this stanza, Behold, I desire your regulations. In your righteousness, preserve me. Because we've seen this beautiful life, this great treasure that's provided by God through the death of His Son, given in the Word and sacraments, and received by faith. But you and I can't maintain it. We can't hold on to it. In no way can we live up to the standards that God has set we earnestly desire to. I desire your regulations. How can we be maintained in those regulations, in the observations of God's moral direction for our lives? How can we keep it up? Remember, the sufferings and pains and torments that we bear are too much for us. We would give in to the tempting release of those pressure valves but true, lasting blessedness comes only from God. In His righteousness, we are preserved. Our own righteousnesses are all like a filthy cloth. 
But Jesus' righteousness is perfect. And it's yours. And it's mine. That is God's promise. He gives it to you. He keeps you in it. He causes you to remain in His righteousness. In fact, it is God who is working in you both to will and to work for the sake of His good pleasure. He does all the work of your salvation, the beginning, the middle, and the end. He works for you and in you in an ongoing cycle of repentance and forgiveness until that end where we receive that righteousness, that glory, and that life in fullness with His Son, your Savior. Amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, forevermore. Amen.